In chapters 21 and 22, it really forms a unit. We studied the priesthood. Now, the priesthood was Old Testament. I don't think God ever intended for a group of people in the New Testament to become priests like there were priests in the Old Testament. There's a couple of very important reasons for that. Number one, Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He represents us to God. Now the idea is, well, I'm not worthy to just come directly to God. I've got to go through other beings, other people. Is an affront to what God did on the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a second and perhaps more profound reason for that, and that is the Bible in the New Testament teaches the priesthood of all believers. Can you imagine the shock on my mother's face when after years where she said after she wanted Jim and Rick to be priests and Bob and none of them made it and I was her last hope, when I came home and said, Mom, I'm a priest. That's not funny. But in the New Testament sense, you are all priests unto God. You're a nation of priests. We'll get to that in a minute. It would seem that originally the entire nation of Israel was meant by God to be priests unto God. But they failed. Thus one family was selected. I say that because in Exodus 19, which we covered some time back, in verse 5, now therefore, God said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now it didn't work because the children of Israel defiled God's intention by idolatry. They set up a golden calf. They rejected the covenant God made with them. They said, these are the gods which brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. And Israel fell into idolatry. Thus, God narrowed down the priesthood to one tribe, the tribe of Levi. Levi and his sons, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. The priesthood was divided up into responsibilities under these three gentlemen. They were representatives to God of the people. They were offering the sacrifices and approaching the tabernacle on a daily basis. Now in Israel there's a pecking order, so to speak. There's the congregation at large, then there was the priesthood, which had different regulations than the rest of Israel. Some of them were the same, but some of them were a higher standard. And then you have the high priest. Now the further you go up in that pecking order, the greater the responsibility and the more restrictions were given to the lives of those who served God in the tabernacle. The whole community was to be holy and without blemish, but there was a higher standard of holiness for the priesthood and especially the high priesthood. Why? Because that man was a link and a representative of God to the people. There were two men that robbed a jewelry store. One was a lawyer. This is not a lawyer's joke, though I do like lawyer's jokes. If you know any of them, pass them along. <laughs> one was a lawyer and one was a high school dropout. Both were caught and tried for the same crime. When the judge gave the sentence, the lawyer was sentenced to 10 years of imprisonment. The high school dropout who performed the crime with him was given three years. When pressed by the defense attorney as to why, the, the uh, judge said, because the lawyer should have been the greatest example of the law, and as one who studied law and became a lawyer and should have been that example because he transgressed, his transgression is greater than that of the one who didn't know as much. So there's a higher set of standards. Verses 1 through 9, it's the standards for the ordinary priest. Verses 10 through 15, restrictions for the high priest. Now, you are a royal priesthood. 
as Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, if you're taking notes, we read, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So because we're all called to be a priesthood unto God, we have a higher standard than the person in the world. I often get questions like, gosh, it seems now that I've become a Christian that things are a little more restrictive. I say, no, there's more liberty to serve Christ. Oh, but there's certain things that are more restrictive. For instance, in marriage and divorce and remarriage, it seems like if you're in the world, it's a different set of standards than for the Christian. Well, think about it. You're called to reflect God. Well, I'm not perfect. Of course you're not perfect. But God wants you to be a light to the people around you. Now also there is a parallel here of the priesthood to those in the ministry today. They were all called to be priests. Those who aspired to the ministry in 1 Timothy and in Titus and a few other books, there's all those, those regulations that are given, restrictions that are given. Qualification, you can't be a novice. You have to have your family in order. You have to have your personal life in order, your doctrine in order, and so forth. Now in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. Also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has no husband, for she, or uh, for her he may defile himself, otherwise he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. The idea was this. Whatever comes close to God, be it a sacrifice or be it a human being, there has to be a standard of holiness. That person or that thing sacrificed can have no defect. And certain things would defile the priest, touching those who have died, touching unclean uh, creeping things, insects, and there were a number of things that would defile a person as a priest. Touching the dead was one of them. It's a stricter separation is given. Now, I want to make the parallel to Christian leadership. As a Christian leader, though I am flesh and blood and, like everybody else, just an ordinary dude, there are certain things, certain restrictions, certain standards, as we mentioned in 1 Timothy and in Titus, that are given. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. It is a good work. It's an awesome work. It's a blast. I wouldn't do anything else. But it's also a very responsible work. James said, be not many masters, you receive the stricter judgment or the greater condemnation, as King Jimmy likes to say. You're judged on a different standard. There are certain things I can't do, places I couldn't go. I really wouldn't want to go, but I don't have the liberty to go. It would cause a stumbling block. Now let's say personally I had the liberty to go down and slam a brewski at the local bar. Now, if I was in Germany, pastors in Germany have the freedom to go grab a few beers after a service. It's part of their culture. It's not part of this culture. And it would stumble people. But let's say personally I felt like it's okay for me to do that. But what would you think as you were walking by the bar? Why you'd walk by it in the first place, I don't know, but let's say you were. <laughs> You look in there and go, honey, I see the pastor. He's got a Bud Light. <laughs> and he's just slurping it up. When you see that in your mind, it could cause a number of things to go on. One being, hey, <laughs> it's okay for him to do it. I'm going to go out and do it. I'm going to have three or four. I'm going to have six or eight. And by my actions, I might cause a scandal on in the Greek, a stumbling block, an inducement to sinful behavior. The priest had to be in a place where he's not defiled because of the greater responsibility. It's a good work. It's a responsible work. And 
in many ways, it is a dangerous work. As we go on in chapter 22, God says, Now I'm giving you all these regulations for the priests. And if you don't watch it, you better watch it, because if you don't, you'll get killed. In other words, God, God is implying, I will kill you physically. It was a precarious spot to be in. It's dangerous in many ways to be in the ministry. And if you are in the ministry or you aspire to be in the ministry, I think you have some idea of this. You walk a precarious line. You have to be on your guard in many ways. You have many relationships in the ministry. Many eyes are upon you. I was eating lunch today. I must have been approached by six, seven different groups of people. Eyes look at you. People in the church, your family, pastors in the community. Demands are made upon those in the ministry for time. I've shared, I think, this with you before, but in 1991, a survey of pastors conducted by Fuller Seminary in California revealed that 80% of those in the ministry believe that the pastorate has adversely affected their family, 80%. 33% saying being in the ministry is an outright hazard to my family. 75% report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the job. 90% feel they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 40% report a serious conflict with the parishioner at least once a month. 37% confess to having been involved with inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in their church, 70% don't have one that they consider to be a close friend. So it's a dangerous spot. So don't just say, yeah, ministry, great, I'm going to go for it. Count the costs. There are costs. Somebody asked Chuck Smith, he said, give me some advice. I want to be in the ministry. Give me some, just a nugget of advice. Chuck said, learn to walk alone. The high priest set apart, the priesthood set apart among the people, part of the people, but a stricter set of parameters for them. And part of it was including the touching of the dead in verses 1 through 4. Remember Aaron, back in chapter 10, was unable to grieve for his own sons who were killed. He was a high priest. Now why did God forbid him to grieve and tear his garment as the high priest? It was his own sons that had died, Nadab and Abihu, because God killed them. And for him to show mourning before the nation of Israel would have sent a mixed signal. Since this was part of the judgment of God, he had to refrain from mourning over the judgment of God, even for his two sons. How difficult that must have been. However, we see here that God allowed the ordinary priest to grieve and... Um, mourn over the death of his immediate family. As you notice in verses 1 through 4, the list of those who the priest can mourn for, the wife is not included. You know why that is? I was reading a Jewish commentary today because the scriptural teaching that a husband and wife shall become one flesh, it was automatically implied and known that if the wife died, the husband would grieve over the loss of his wife. And so it didn't even need to be stated because when you mention the man, you mention the man and his wife together. They're one flesh. I like that. Seen together. Verse 5, they shall not make any bald place on their heads. This doesn't mean they can't be bald. They just can't make bald spaces on their head, which was a custom of the heathen in their mourning rituals. They would cut parts of their body and scrape the hair off their head or the edges of their beard or make any cuttings of their flesh. Look at verse 7. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Therefore you shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. In verse 13. Same thought is carried over. We'll get back to the other verses. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot, 
These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. Nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. Now this refers to his private life and his marriage to that wife of whom they become one flesh. The reason for these commandments is, first of all, God did not want there to be any question of the priest's posterity for the priesthood. A kid comes up because it was a harlot. A kid could be, have a number of fathers so that there would be no question as to who the next generation of priests would be. This commandment is given in these verses. Now, in the New Testament sense, the wife is very important to the minister. She has to be pure as well. She's in it with him. It's not just, honey, you're in the ministry. We're in the ministry. She's a co-laborer with him in the ministry. Let me just say for all those who want to be in the ministry as men or who already are, if you're a Christian man in the ministry and you have a wife, you have a priority list. Number one, it is your relationship to your God that is preeminent above every activity in your life, no matter who you are. Be you single, married, male or female, young or old, your priority is a relationship with God that is to be cultivated and nurtured. After that, after your relationship to your God comes your relationship to your wife. Not, honey, God's first and then the church is second. Ah, uh, no. It's God and then your wife. Many wives feel left out, unimportant, insecure, because their husbands make flaky excuses and everything becomes korban, dedicated to God. Well, she is his first ministry, nurturing that woman. The wife is to be ministered to. Then, of course, your children, and then the church. But the family is first. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible says, an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Which literally means a one-woman man. It's more than just being married to a woman. I've got to get married. That's not a spiritual qualification. The idea is that he's not a flirt. He's devoted to one woman and one woman only. Not only is he married to her, but he demonstrates that devotedness to his wife so that she doesn't feel neglected. Now, the, the priest is a type of Jesus Christ. We are, as the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus is holy and without blemish. The church, in Ephesians chapter 5, is to be presented to Christ holy and without blemish, even as the wife of the priest was also to be holy and without blemish. Now here, he could marry a harlot or a divorced woman or someone who is defiled. I've got to say very, very quickly on the heels of that, that in the New Testament sense, I don't think that because a man has been divorced as the innocent party that he's precluded from ministry. That is, if his wife committed adultery or his wife left him and he was faithful, that all of a sudden because that happened that he's no longer qualified for ministry. I don't see that at all. And I think, I've got to say though, divorce is a sin and God hates divorce. Many divorced people are treated as second-rate citizens. Yeah, God hates divorce, but he loves divorced people. And especially if someone's been faithful, man or woman, and has been treated unfaithfully by a spouse, for the church to say, you're no longer qualified, get out. Now if he's in the ministry, and he hasn't been devoted to his wife, and because of his lack of devotion, that created problems, exacerbated existing problems, and they split up. I think he needs to take a hiatus and get out and work toward restoration, but I don't think it necessitates that he should be out for good. Now verse 10, oh by the way, we ought to realize, here's the qualifications for the priest and then the wife. The wife was not called the priestess, but the wife of the priest. Now there were qualifications, but she was his wife. The wife of a pastor is not an assistant pastor. When I married my wife, I didn't want an assistant pastor. Now, she has many gifts and talents she can teach, and she's very, very gifted. 
in the woman's ministry. But that's something God has done and something she's wanted to get involved in. But listen, where did this unwritten tacit rule come from that the pastor's wife has to play the piano, (laughs) sing, wear a bouffant hairdo? I don't know where this stuff comes from. It's just a tradition passed on. No, she's just to love her husband. That's all. And I think many women in the ministry feel pressured because, oh, I'm the wife of a man of God. I've got to go out and do this. No, all you have to do is love that man, love your children, be devoted to him, and whatever else comes, fine. If God puts it on your heart, great. He was the high priest among his brethren. This is now the high priest. Rules are given from the priesthood to that special representative, the high priest. The high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who was consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head or tear his clothes. Nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of God is upon him. I am the Lord." Now, this is regarding the high priest. He's not to tear his garment, a symbol of grief. Really, he's not to be a violent person because the tearing of the garment meant either grief or anger. Now, this is something that at the trial of Jesus Christ was not followed. The high priest, Caiaphas, when Jesus was asked, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Yep, I am. And he tore his garment. Now, it was okay to tear your garment if you were an Israeli, if somebody died in your family, if a blasphemous statement was given, you could tear your garment, but you couldn't do it if you were a high priest. Remember Joshua and Caleb when they were at Kadesh Barnea? The people started rebelling against God. They didn't want to go into the land. One fellow spoke up and said, let's find a leader to lead us back to Egypt. Joshua tore his robe. Because he saw the people rebelling against the covenant of God. Ezra, when he found out the people in Jerusalem were intermarrying, he tore his garments because the priesthood was starting to become defiled. It was okay to do such an act, but not if you were the high priest. He couldn't be a violent person. Now, in the New Testament, the elder says that he is not to be a violent person. Listen, if you want to be in the ministry... Don't go around looking for a fight. There are some people that, and I don't mean necessarily physically, just punch people out. But there are those who theologically feel like they just, they're always on the negative. They're always the watchdog. Never sharing anything good, just finding what's bad about everything and everybody else. Wanting to pick a fight. They know a little bit of scripture, they know a little Greek word here and there, and they're looking for somebody to argue with. Charles Spurgeon wrote to his students, Don't go around the world with your fists doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. You don't have to be physically abusive or try to pick some gospel gunfight. Not violent. Verses 16 through 24 give disqualifications for the priest. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a blind man, lame, who has a marred face, or any limb too long. (laughs) A man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or who is a hunchback, or a dwarf, Or a man who has a defect in his eye, literally his eye is overspread, where the uh, white and the dark spots aren't clearly delineated portions of the eye. Or eczema, or scab, or as a eunuch, no man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord, sanctify them. 
Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. Now every sacrifice had to be without blemish and every sacrifice offerer had to be without blemish. Why? Well, one very important reason from a New Testament perspective. Both the priest and the sacrifice represent Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. There's another reason. It's a very obvious reason. You had to be fit to be in the ministry in those days. Man, you were kind of like, uh, you had to lift heavy objects, you had to be a butcher, you had to be able to see well in all of the ceremonies that the priest was to perform. You had to be physically fit. Now, this doesn't mean that if you were born in a priestly family that you'd be left out. In fact, you could eat of the same food provision, the holy flesh for the sin offering that was brought for the priest, the bread, all of the offerings, you could eat. You just couldn't offer the sacrifice. You lacked the capabilities. Now, what God was doing is saying, if somebody is born with a defect, don't push them out. I'll take care of them. We'll love them. We'll nurture them. We'll care for them. They're still priests. They just can't officiate as priests. So you have to be able to perform your ministry. You have to be physically able. Now, in the New Testament, those who are called in the ministry also have to have an ability. You can't just say, yeah, I want to go be a pastor. You have to be able to what? Teach. Or as one translation says, skilled in teaching. You need the gift of teaching to do it, to be able to impart. If you don't have the gift of teaching, don't do it. There's other things you can do. But he has to be able to teach one of his main ministries. And we said in verses 22 and 23, he could partake of all of the food and all of the provision. He just couldn't officiate. Now let's go over to chapter 22, which talks about the purity ceremonially. Not physically, not speaking about defects, but you had to do things in the right manner. You couldn't have a disease. You couldn't touch the dead again or anything that is unclean. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name in those things which they sanctify to me. I am the Lord. Again, the repetition of who God is. Lest you decide to say, well, how come? Because I'm the Lord. <laughs> Enough said. Say to them, Whoever of all your descendants throughout your generation who goes near to the holy things which the children of Israel sanctify to the Lord, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. You see, the priest was not to go about his business in a haphazard kind of a way. Not a kind of a loose thing. This was a holy office that God had given to him. He had to take it seriously. Look down at verse 9. They shall therefore keep my ordinance, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby. If they profane it, I, the Lord, will sanctify them. The rabbis used to explain this verse, calling it death at the hand of heaven. In other words, if you're a priest and you don't do it the right way, God will kill you. You say, that's Old Testament. Well, you know, you ought to read books like 1 Corinthians. Because we find that in 1 Corinthians, at the church of Corinth, Paul said, many of you are not taking communion, the Lord's Supper, seriously. Some of you are getting drunk at it. Some of you are taking it uh, in a frivolous kind of a manner. Because of that, many of you are sick and have even died because of that. So he said, you better judge yourself before you approach the communion table. Ananias and Sapphira were judged physically in death. God subtracted them from the body of Christ. Now, they were not slain in the Spirit when they fell over. They were slain by the Spirit. It was a permanent slaying. They never got up again. It was no small matter to be a priest. Nadab and Abihu found that out. When they offered profane fire before the Lord, fire came out of heaven, struck them dead. Korah and company... In Numbers chapter 16, rebelled against Moses, saying, Hey, Mo, who are you taking so much upon yourself? You think you're the big cheese around here. God opened up the earth and swallowed them up. There's another instance in the book of Samuel. Eli the priest had two kids, unruly guys. 
He never disciplined them. He let them get away with murder. Tried to rebuke them in his old age. It was too late. They had already set habits and patterns in their lives. But they would, in a very frivolous manner, take the meat hooks and take the meat that was their portion to eat as priests and cause the children of Israel to despise giving a portion of meat to the priesthood. They did it in a very unruly kind of a manner. Now God promised that he would kill them. Did he? Not immediately. But later on, when the Philistines come against Israel and they kill 4,000 Israelis, the children of Israel get a bright idea. They say, you know, what we need to do is take the Ark of the Covenant, bring it within our camp, because if we have that, the Ark, it's like a lucky charm. God will deliver the Philistines into our hands. So they got the Ark. What happened? Philistines captured the Ark. And it says they killed that day Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli the priest. Now when Eli heard that his sons died, he was saddened, but it didn't bother him as much as when he heard the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines. As we said, when he heard that, he fell over, broke his neck, and he died. So the stipulations for the priesthood, lest they bear their sin for it and they die thereby. Verses 17 through 20, we're really going down through this. The conditions of the sacrifice offered. Look at verse 20. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. It shall have no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord, either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short. You may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. Now, you ought to know that the rabbis, in looking at this verse after this scripture was given, extended this to virtually everything that was offered, be it the flour, the wine, the oil, anything used in the tabernacle as an offering had to be the best. The rabbi said even the wood that was gathered to kindle the fire for the burnt sacrifice for the altar of burnt offering had to be inspected and free of any worms or holes where worms had burrowed in. In other words, whatever we give to God has to be really good, has to be pure. Not lame, not broken, not maimed. Now Israel later on failed to do this. What happened in the book of Malachi, toward the end of the Old Testament era, they started bringing lambs to God that were mutilated. Instead of saying, let's find the best for God, they said, oh, you know, it's just the religious thing. Just get that old lamb, that's good enough. And so in the book of Malachi, God said, chapter 1, If I then am the Father, then where is my honor? If I am the Master, where is my reverence? says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, what way have we despised your name? God says, you offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? So they had to bring a sacrifice that had been inspected, had to be pure. Now, at the time of Jesus Christ, this practice had degenerated. It had degenerated into a clever money-making business. In the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles, on the western side of the temple and the southern side of the temple, as you would enter, there were booths set up. There were money changers, and there were small animals kept in enclosures. And there was an inspection process. Here you are, you've come all the way, let's say, from Galilee, and you've carried this little lamb to be sacrificed. And you take it to the inspection booth. The priest would look it over. 
And even if it was a perfect lamb, you inspected it's without defect. He might look at him and go, well, there is a problem. As I look here, look very closely, you see that defect? You go, uh, no. Oh, look closely, you see that? Uh, no, it looks perfect. Well, it's not, all right? It's defective. This cannot be offered to God. It's not your best. But, not to worry, we have just classic lambs right over here. They're perfect. They're without any blemish at all. We'll sell you one. Great. Okay, great. How much? And then he'd tell you the price. And he jacked up the price, the, the worth, exorbitantly. That's what Jesus was doing when he overturned the money changers' tables and those who were making merchandise in the table. They had taken this practice of offering the best to God and they were making money for themselves on it. Taking people's desire to worship God to line their own pockets. It was a money-making racket. However, there's a principle here. God says, if you're going to offer something to me, I want your best. I don't want your leftovers. Don't give me your cast-offs. I've been in the ministry long enough to watch people in their giving habits. Now, I don't look at the offerings given. I don't look in the computer to find out who gave what. I don't care. But it's interesting when people give to the poor or give to the church. They get something new to replace something beat up and old. You go, hey, this thing is old, old and beat up. I can't use it anymore. Let's give it to God. That old beat up piano, let's give it to the church. Those old clothes, oh, hey, the, those people can use it. According to Jewish tradition, because of this law, the Jews thought it was such a holy thing to give alms, even to the poor. Any act of charity had to be the absolute best, not a leftover. They were to give the best. There was a little girl. Her daddy gave her two dollars. Honey, he said, one dollar is for you. Spend it any way you want. The other dollar belongs to God. It goes in the offering. Okay, daddy. She was going to the store to buy something. One of the dollars, the wind caught it. It went down the sewer. She started crying. Oh, God. She said, I'm so sorry your dollar went down the sewer. <laughs> oh, well, how come it wasn't her dollar? The one that was lost belongs to God. God says, I want the best. Now, it's not the amount, it's the heart, isn't it? It's the idea of sacrifice. Remember David, who was looking for a place to build the temple, and he saw there on Mount Zion the threshing floor of Arana. He said, hey, buddy, here, I'll, I'll pay you for your threshing floor. And he said, oh, no, you're going to use it for God's house. I'll give it to you. No, I'll pay you for it, David said. No, 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 really, you're the king, and this is for God. You can have it. David said, you don't understand. I won't give God anything that doesn't cost me something. The true heart of giving. Remember when Jesus was in the temple one day and he saw people going into the court of the women and they were giving their offerings, some very ostentatiously, giving out of their abundance. There's a woman who came in and put in two mites. That's a tenth of a cent. Not very impressive. Jesus said, this woman has given more than the rest. They have given out of their abundance. She gave her very sustenance. Oh, they've got money to spare. They can use that as a write-off. But this woman has given everything. It was the heart, the sacrifice behind the giving. It was her best. It's not the amount. Listen, God doesn't end up there going, oh, how much did you give this month? But it's the heart that's behind it. Down in verse 31, Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Verse 32 is called Israel's Bible in miniature by the Jewish rabbis because it, it, it condenses some very important truths about reverencing God. On one hand, there's an admonition, a warning against misusing the divine name. And then there's a commandment, a positive commandment about honoring God's name. The Jewish rabbis taught their followers, whatever actions you perform reflect the glory of the name of God that has been given to you. So you've got to make sure that your life is lived to add luster to the name of God, to be attractive to the name of God, so that people would see your life and be attracted to this relationship that you have with God. In fact, there's a story about one rabbi 
who sent one of his disciples to buy a camel from an Arab. The men came back with the camel, showed it to their master, and found that on the collar of the camel there was a precious gem. The rabbi said, did the one who sell this camel to you know that there was a precious gem? They said, no. We got a great price on it, and he didn't know it was there. He said, go take it back to him immediately. I am not a barbarian. He went back and told him about the gem. And it is said that the Arab, upon seeing the honesty of the rabbi, said, blessed be the God of Israel. And blessed be the God of this rabbi. It made such an impression that this guy wasn't out to take him. He was out to live honestly because he was reflecting the glory of his God. Now we come to Leviticus chapter 23, which we won't be able to finish tonight. It's really a great chapter. Now I, I have a, a few options as I go through Leviticus. I could, I could give it to you in two weeks, the whole book. Or I could give it to you in four settings. Leviticus 23 is a hallmark chapter. It gives you all of the background of the feasts of the Lord. And it's wonderful to know them. In fact, the whole idea of the feast was celebration and joy. God wanted them to be happy and to celebrate in their relationship with God. In fact, there's even a commandment in the scripture about these feasts. You shall rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. I love that. So many people think God is some killjoy. Out to go following God. What a boring life. Well, not in Israel. It was great. And I think the feasts that we celebrate ought to be filled with joy. I don't know why it is, but Christmas time seems to be a very difficult time for many people. Oh, Christmas is coming up. You know, bah humbug. Hey, we don't know when Jesus was born, but you're celebrating his coming into the world. You ought to be filled with joy. Oh, but there's so many gifts to buy. Well, then don't buy them. If it's going to cause so much anxiety and stress, then just chill. I mean, look at the faces of the people in the mall. Merry Christmas. They're going, get out of my way, man. Honk, honk. I tell you, it's high stress on the roads. It's not worth it. I've been to some weddings that look like funerals. The crowd is out there, and it's just like, man, who died? Where's the joy? So somber. There were three feasts. Many of them are given in this chapter, but there were three feasts called pilgrim feasts. These are the biggies. It required male attendance in Jerusalem for Jews that lived in a certain parameter around Jerusalem. They had to three times a year get up and go down to Jerusalem and live there during this feast to celebrate. First of all was Passover. The Jews call it Pesach. Then there was Pentecost. The Jews call it Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And then finally it was the Festival of the Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Um, a lot of these feasts deal with the agricultural changes and the agricultural festivals in Israel. The bringing in of the sheep, the bringing in of the barley, and so forth. It had to do with their work. What God was doing is taking and making their work a holy thing. God was coming to their level, dealing with everything that they do, which would make even the most boring job an act of worship to God. Have you ever thought of your boring job as an act of worship? Oh, I hate this job, man. It's the same old routine. How about saying, God, the same old routine goes up to you. May I, may I be the best. May it be the best as unto you. I think of the first century Christians, 60% were slaves. I can't think of a more boring job. Can you? What do you do for a living? I'm a slave. I do whatever that master says. Oh, it's pretty boring sometimes. But I want to be the best slave I can for the glory of God. You know that many Christian masters, the early church historians tell us, came to Jesus Christ because they saw the slaves who loved God and with the right motivation served their masters. And so these feasts celebrate, involved also the work ethic of Israel. The Sabbath is mentioned, and we're going to have time probably just to finish this and maybe pass over. Verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, 
Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts, six days work shall be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. This is the fourth commandment, isn't it? This is God's maintenance law for the children of Israel. He esteemed work. Work is good. You need to work, but you also need to cruise. You need to hang out. And so you work six days and you're off one. Now this law is still in effect in Israel. They don't have a five-day work week with two days off. You work hard for six days straight from Sunday to Friday. You get one day off. And because there's only one day off, they don't add more work to their week. They hang out. They spend time with their family. They eat together. They sing together. They study the Bible together. They pray together. It's a great family time. Again, this shows that God isn't a fuddy-duddy. He's taking care of them. He's giving them a maintenance law for them to rest, a day of rejuvenation. Now, the word Sabbath or Shabbat simply means to stop, to come to an end. God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he came to an end. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rest because he was done. And so it was given as a uh, model from creation. But then it was given to the children of Israel as a law while they were in the wilderness. They got up one morning and they looked on the ground and there was this odd white stuff called manna. Which means, what is it? It's the first question when you see, what is it? And God said, pick up that manna for six days, but on the seventh day, there won't be any. So you can't go out and pick it up. You have to rest that day. Just pick up enough on the last day that will last you into the Sabbath. You pick it up every morning except on Friday, you pick it up for two days. Friday night and Saturday up till Saturday night. And they'll be on the ground again on Sunday. God was sustaining them, but God sustained them and also gave them a day off to rest. Now, today in Jewish homes, if you ever get a chance to celebrate Sabbath with a Jewish family or with the Jewish Gentile fellowship, you're in for a treat. It's a great custom. It's very family-oriented. First of all, Traditionally, this isn't kept all over the place, but traditionally, you, wear, you dress up a little bit. You think, oh, I hate to dress up. I, don't want to, I wouldn't like that at all. You're making a statement when you dress up. You're saying, okay, I dress like a slob the rest of the week. This is at least one night I can dress nice for my family because I esteem them higher than all the other activities of my week. So the guy will put on a tie and she'll wear a dress. Kids will even dress up, and it's all to center around their family, centering around this covenant that God has given them. The woman lights two candles and brings in the Shabbat with a blessing. She invites the Lord to take over the house. They eat a long, leisurely meal together. They spend the evening together. They relate with each other. Now, why are there two candles? Well, there's a couple of reasons. In ancient days, in the first century and so forth, the average Jewish home had two rooms. And you'd light a candle, one candle on normal nights of the week, and you'd walk with one candle from one room into the next. If you needed something or you went to bed, you'd blow your candle out. On Shabbat, you could not carry a burden. So you'd have a candle in one room and a candle in the other room. That's where it came from originally. You'd light the candles before Sabbath, and you'd light it 18 minutes before sundown, about 40 minutes before nightfall, so that you could rest on those days. Also, there were two commandments, you shall remember, you shall observe. And because of those two commandments, two candles were lit, and the family was together on that. Um, you know, we have a few minutes. Let's just talk a little bit about it. I'm asked this question. When did the Sabbath change to Sunday? Have you ever heard that question? Well, when did Sunday become the Christian Sabbath? It never did. There's no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. There is the Sabbath that God gave as a covenant and a directive to Israel perpetually. 
But there's not a Christian Sabbath. It never changed at all. And the Sabbath was never commended because in Romans 10, Jesus Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law for everyone who believes. However, the early church set aside Sunday as a day of worship because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so we read in Acts chapter 20, the disciples came together to break bread on the first day of the week. And Paul wrote and told the Corinthians, upon the first day of the week, every one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. You see, the seventh day com commemorates the finished creation. Sunday commemorates the finished redemption. It's not changed. There's still a Sabbath, but as a Christian, I'm not commanded to keep it. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. You should also know that of all of the laws in the Old Testament, the, in, in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath was the only non-moral and purely ceremonial law. It was a day of remembering the covenant. And in the New Testament, virtually every single commandment is reiterated and amplified for New Testament believers except the Sabbath. It was a covenant that God gave specifically to Israel. Now, let's apply this. It doesn't matter if it's Saturday, Sunday, Friday, or Tuesday between 2 and 4 in the morning. What matters is that you balance out your work week with rest. Quit worshiping the workaholic. I know that's the patron saint of America. It doesn't need to be yours. We admire the guy who pushes and keeps going and never gets any rest. Oh, that's quite a guy. Listen, he won't be quite a guy for very long. If you keep the bow bent, eventually it will break. God's pattern. Work hard six days. Take one day and just kick back. Cruise. Relax. Don't feel guilty for it. Sit back, oh, I feel so unproductive. I'm just doing nothing. Hey, you'd live longer and you'd feel better if you'd spend one day just kicking back and resting. So the Sabbath was given. And Passover is given in verses 4 and 5. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. We'll get more to that next time we meet. You might want to read a little bit of background. Exodus chapter 12 gives more background to this. This is the first major feast in the history and the year for Israel. It's the Passover. The blood was applied in Egypt to the lintels and the doorposts because the death angel passed over the houses of Israel and didn't slay their firstborn, but slayed all of the firstborn of uh, Egypt. And it becomes the clearest picture of Jesus Christ as far as the Feast of Israel. So next week we'll spend time just covering the Feast of Israel uh, together next time we meet.